Um, we were just talking. It's some of us were talking beforehand. It is absolutely a God thing. We've had what six straight Sundays where we haven't even had to text among leadership like, "Hey, are we going to be able to have an outdoor service or not?" And so to get six straight Sundays of beautiful weather has been such such a blessing. So we are excited for yet another. Uh, I would describe it as infinitely too hot. My wife and the Starkies have described it as very nice and comfortable. So somebody's prayers are carrying more weight as far as it comes to the temperature. But I'm, nonetheless, I'm glad that we're all together. Um, we're going to continue looking at Jesus' life chronologically. This morning we're going to be looking at really his first interactions with some of those who would go on to become his closest friends and apostles. Uh, but before we begin, please let's pray. God, thank you. Uh, thank you for the sun. Thank you for the breeze that comes through and the refreshment it brings. Thank you for the sounds of the birds. Just the opportunity to worship you in the midst of your creation is such a privilege and a joy. And as we open your word, as we prepare to look at what you've given us, God, we ask that you would quiet our hearts, quiet our minds, any distractions would be removed, that this would be a time that we could come before you humbly, that we could come before you submitted to what your word says open our eyes to see and our hearts to understand that we may know you better and that in knowing you better, we may continually be transformed to look like Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're looking at, we're going to be looking at and meeting some of the names that, you know, you're probably a little bit more familiar with Matthew, or not Matthew, I'm sorry, well, we are going to be looking at Matthew briefly, but we're going to be looking at Peter, we're going to be looking at Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel, the guys who would go on to become Jesus' uh, apostles. And it's interesting, we'll spend a little bit more time on them further on in this study, but even in these first conversations, even in these first interactions, we learn so much about who the person of Christ is and what he means for our relationship with him. We'll be in John 1. If you guys want to turn there, go there on your Bible app, whatever format you use, we'll be in John 1, verses 35 to 51. And while you're turning there, if you recall, in that intro video I did a couple months ago, kind of introducing the idea of this series, I explained that the, the, these four books are not written in chronological order. And so that's why over the past couple weeks we've been looking at Matthew and Mark, or Mark and Luke, or Luke and Matthew. And now we come to a stretch where we'll be spending a lot of time in the beginning of John. And if you recall from that video that we shared... Um, explaining John, this is kind of a prelude, if you will. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they really begin the bulk of their writing around the same time, and there's a period before that that neither of those three address, but John does. And so that's where we find ourselves to start, and we're in John 1, 35 to 51. The next day again, John was standing with two of his, this is John the Baptist, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. 
Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon the son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And those seem like pretty straightforward conversations, right? Pretty cut and dry, A to B. But when we look at these conversations, I see three truths, three lessons about Jesus. And each of these three lessons occur in both of the two conversations. So we'll kind of be moving back and forth between the two conversations as we look at these this undeniable truths about who Jesus is and what he demands of us. And when I say demands... Yes, Jesus gives us commands in Scripture that we'll look at. We'll, we'll look at the commands He gives. But when I say Jesus demands this response, what I mean is the person of Christ necessitates this response. We cannot encounter Jesus. We cannot encounter God and respond in any way other than this. So when I say Jesus demands these responses, that's what I'm talking about. It's not an imperial dictator, I demand this. There are certainly commands that he gives us, but I mean the person of Jesus, the relationship he has made available to us, we must reply in these manners. And the first thing that you see in each of these conversations, the first thing that you see with, in that when it says there were two disciples who heard John the Baptist say, this is the Messiah, that was John who wrote the book of John, and, and Andrew. And so we look at John and Andrew and then Andrew and Simon Peter. We look at Philip and Nathaniel. And the first thing that I see is that Jesus demands to be sought after. Jesus demands that we seek after him, right? Because John and, John and uh, Andrew, they were following John the Baptist, right? Did you catch that in the beginning? It said two of his disciples were following after him. So disciples... You can follow anybody. Disciple, you can be a disciple of, of any pastor, any church, any... I mean, disciple is not the absolute distinction here. They were following John the Baptist. But why were they following John the Baptist? Because John the Baptist was teaching about the coming Messiah. John the Baptist was pointing to the coming Messiah. They were following John the Baptist in anticipation and in desire of following the Messiah. They were following John the Baptist, but they were seeking Jesus. And I love, one of the things I love, I, I, I mean, there are a billion things to love about Jesus. One of the things I love about Jesus is his conversations with people, right? He always asks questions that make people reflect. I mean, think about it. When he heals the, the lame man, he says, do you want to be healed? Before he feeds the crowds, he turns to his disciples and he says, all right, how do you think we should feed him? He asks his disciples, well, who do you say I am, right? He asks people questions that are designed to make them reflect, to go beyond the surface level 
and really examine their own heart, examine their own motivations, examine their own desires. And he does this here. John the Baptist says to two of his guys, hey, that's the Messiah. So they turn and start following Jesus. And Jesus turns and he says, what are you searching for? What are you seeking? Because Jesus knew what was ahead. He knew the cost that would be asked of these men. He knew the toll it would take. He knew the sacrifice that it would require. And so he asks them, he wants them to consider, look, what are you actually searching after? And I think the same question we must be willing to ask ourselves today, what are we actually seeking? Are we seeking prosperity? Are we seeking better health? Are we seeking friendships? I mean, why are we following Jesus? Are we following Jesus because we want the side benefits? Or are we seeking after Jesus because we yearn for the person of Christ? And Jesus asked these two men that before they began following him. And then you jump forward to Philip and Nathaniel. And I find it very interesting because you see the same idea, right? When Andrew met Jesus, he runs and tells Simon, his brother, he says, hey, we have found the Messiah we've been looking for. So not only were John and Andrew searching for Jesus, you know, Simon was also searching for Jesus. I don't know why he wasn't there with him that exact moment. That's not the important thing. And the important thing is he goes to his brother and he says, hey, the one we've been searching for, we found. So you see in each of the first three guys that we meet, they were all searching for Jesus. Then we go to Philip and Nathaniel. And Philip meets Jesus and he runs to tell his brother Nathaniel. And I find it very interesting. He doesn't say we have found the Messiah. He doesn't say we have found the Christ, right? He says we have found the one whom Moses and the prophets wrote of. So the implication and the understanding of that is that Nathaniel would know who that was talking about because Nathaniel was studying Scripture desiring to find the Messiah. So in all of these men, we see a seeking after the Lord. We see hearts that are searching for God, that have committed themselves to pursuing God. And the same, I believe, must be true about us today. And it's a very simple question. What are you searching for? What are you seeking after? But it's a question that will require brutal honesty. And the question is, what are you searching for? I believe the answer must be Christ and Christ alone. I'm not searching for more money. I'm not searching for better health. I'm not searching for a nicer house. I'm not searching for a greater position of influence. I'm not searching for more power or prominence. I am searching for Jesus and Jesus alone. And we see that in the start of this conversation. Listen to these verses in Scripture. Proverbs 8, 17. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Diligently. Can you say you are diligently seeking God in everything you do? 1 Chronicles 16, 11, Seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His presence continually. Are you diligently searching for God? Are we continually searching for God? Deuteronomy 4.29, But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find Him if you search after Him with all your heart and with all your soul. Are we diligently searching for God? Are we continually searching for God? Are we entirely searching for God? Can I look at my life and reflect on my life and say, yes, every aspect of my life is in pursuit of the Lord. The conversations I have, they're in pursuit of the Lord. That's obvious. The movies I watch, the music I listen to, the books I read, what I entertain myself with reflects a heart. And I'm not saying, you know, you'll hear some people say, like, you can only listen 
to gospel music or you can only watch you know, movies put out by a Christian production studio. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is in everything we do, is there an underlying and a driving and a motivating search for the Lord? One of the things I love doing is using pop culture and media to create conversations about God. Right? When you talk to people about God, and they're like, ah, I'm not so interested in God. I don't think there's really anything to the Bible. Okay, you know, let's talk about the Dark Knight trilogy, right? Christopher Nolan, Batman movies, that's an easy conversation. It has nothing to do with God. Well, what about the themes of redemption? What about the themes of, of forgiveness? What about the themes of the duality of good and evil? I mean, so when I talk about in everything are we searching for God, what I'm saying is, is the lens that we view this world and filter it through driven by a heart that is searching for the Lord. And I think we see that in Simon and in Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel. And then the second thing that we see, and it ties right into this first thing, Jesus demands to be shared. I love, it is so beautiful to me that Andrew's immediate response and Philip's immediate response is, I found Jesus, the one I've been searching for. I got to tell somebody. I got to tell everybody. I mean, they meet Jesus and their immediate reaction is, I got to go tell people, right? And they rush to their brothers to tell them. And I want to ask you a couple questions. Work through me with it or work through this with me, if you will. And if you don't know the answers, that's okay. This can be something you learn. These four books that we're using to study Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what are they collectively referred to as? The gospel, right? The gospels. What does gospel mean? Good news. What do you do with good news? You spread it. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, think about it, right? Like I, I've been on Facebook now long enough. I've rejoined to know that we share everything that is remotely considered good news. And we should. There is something wonderful about sharing, right? Like when Addie and I got engaged, we couldn't wait to share the news with people, right? When we graduate, when we get our first job, when we have a child, when we have a grandchild, when we have a great meal, we want to share it with people because we want to enjoy it with the people we care about. So it seems rather troubling to me that the very best piece of news in our lives Really, the only piece of news in our lives that has eternal significance, it seems to me that's the stuff we're the least likely to share. And we're the most reluctant to share. And we're the most hesitant to share. And that's tragic to me. Because when you look at Jesus, I see someone who demands to be shared. And I know the whispers that pop up, you're not good enough. Someone with your past, you haven't earned the right to tell people about Jesus right? You're too much of a sinner. You still, you're wrestling with too much. You're not, that's the, that's the job of your pastor, of your elders, of your Sunday school teachers, not you. This can't fall to you. You haven't earned that right. You're not good enough to tell people about Jesus. I want to look at another disciple who met Christ and immediately sought to share him. And this is Matthew. And we're going to start in Matthew's own account of when Christ called him to follow him. Matthew 9, 9 through 10. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Seems pretty straightforward. There's a bit of a, you know, large jump. He calls Matthew, and then we cut to a dinner table. But that seems pretty simple. That's because Matthew's humble. 
Matthew doesn't, Matthew doesn't go into the full detail of all that transpired between the calling and the meal. Listen to how Luke records it. This is Luke 5, 27 through 29. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. Levi and Matthew, it was the same name in different languages. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed Jesus. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. Did you catch that? What Luke included that Matthew was too humble to point out? Matthew gets called by Jesus, and his immediate reaction is to leave everything and to follow Jesus. And not just to do so, but to throw a massive feast at his house and invite the tax collectors, invite the sinners, right? I met Jesus. I want you guys to meet Jesus. And so when you start to think, when you start to hear that whisper of, you're not... You're not someone to tell people about Jesus because of your past, because of your baggage, because of what other people think about you. Remember who Matthew was. Matthew was a tax collector. Tax collectors were hated by their fellow Jews. Because tax collectors were Jews who essentially sold out to the oppressive Roman government. And so not only did they work for the hated Roman government, but within that position, they abused their authority and they stole from their own people. Tax, if you think people say bad things about you, people said worse things about Matthew. If you think your neighbors aren't interested in a conversation with you, Matthew's neighbors were way less interested in a conversation with him. And Matthew's immediate response was, man, I got to tell everybody. I'm going to throw a feast and invite people to my house so that they can meet Jesus. Because that's another thing that we do when it comes to this idea of sharing Jesus. And I've been guilty of this in the past. Right? When I had youth leaders in high school ministries tell me, you need to be having a conversation with Jesus, my response was, yeah, I'm ready. Like if somebody asks me a question, I'm, I'm ready to talk to them. And that was my approach for a long time was, I'm ready to hang back. Ooh. Uh-huh. All right. I still sound my, or hear myself, so I don't mess anything up. Like, I was ready if you came to me, right? And Jesus had to convict me. God had to convict me that no. Why are you waiting back passively waiting? Matthew didn't meet Jesus and then sit there and say, okay, next time I'm invited to a dinner party, I'll say, hey, can, can I bring my, my new friend Jesus too? Matthew met Jesus and he immediately went and created the opportunity to have that conversation. Matthew was active. Matthew took the initiative in starting that conversation and introducing people to Jesus. So I asked myself, why am I so reluctant to take the initiative? I want to be ready if people ask me questions. But what's wrong with starting the conversation? What's wrong? I've had some great conversations by just asking random people, tell me what you think about God. Good or bad? What do you, I mean, what do you think about God? I've had people say, I don't. I don't think he exists. Oh, let's talk about that. I've had people say, you know, I think he's kind of the big mean kid with the, you know, just waiting to get you sinners. Interesting. Let's talk about that. I've had people say, oh, I love God. I have a relationship with him. Oh, cool. We're in the same family. Right? Like, what, what's wrong with us taking the initiative? What's wrong with us taking the approach that Matthew did? If I met Jesus, I'm going to invite my friends over. We're going to talk to Jesus. I'm going to introduce my friends to Jesus. Matthew didn't invite the Pharisees. Matthew didn't invite the people in different social circles. Matthew invited his friends. 
He invited the people he knew. And so I asked myself, man, what would the church look like if we had the same sense of urgency that these men did? What would the church look like today? And this, you know, a couple weeks ago I said it's, it requires ego to think that a sermon is all about you. I want you to consider that this next sentence is all about you. I want you to consider that this next sentence is meant for you and you alone. Do you have an urgency to tell people about Jesus? Are you burdened with a desire to share Christ with the world? Not waiting for someone else to do it. Not waiting, well, you know, the Starkeys, they're missionaries. They've got Community Bible Church covered. We're all off the hook, right? Because I know them, and they're telling people about Jesus. No. Am I personally burdened with telling people about Jesus, with sharing Jesus? Am I taking the initiative to create these conversations? Andrew didn't wait for Simon to come to him. Philip didn't wait for Nathaniel to come to him. Matthew didn't wait for his friends to come to him. They went and told them. Why? Because Jesus demands to be shared because of who he is. If you found, if any of us found the cure for cancer, and I'm talking about all cancer, right? We can wipe out all cancer immediately, completely. If any of us found the cure, would we just sit there and hope that a hospital reached out and said, hey, do you, do you happen to know the cure for cancer? Oh, yeah, you know, I'm glad you asked. No, we'd be beating down the door of every medical facility across the state until we found one that listened to us. So again, do you personally, do I personally have a burden, an urgency, a necessity driving me to tell people about Jesus? The worst thing I can think of that you could say about my life, if someone I knew said this, it would destroy me. I can think of no greater insult than, I didn't know you were a Christian. That would, that would wreck me. If someone who knew me at the end of my life was like, huh, his obituary says he knew Jesus. I didn't know that. And I think for a lot of the American church, our obituary could say that. And people could respond with, huh, I didn't know they knew Jesus. Jesus demands to be shared. Are we burdened with the urgency to do so? And the third thing I see is that Jesus changes us. Jesus demands that we transform. And we again, we see this in each of the conversations. Right? Let me reread when he meets Simon. This is John 1, 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. You are this. You shall be called this. There's the person we were before Christ. There's the person we are after Christ. If you guys want to talk more about this, man, reach out. We'll do coffee. I love talking about the new heart that Christ has put in us, the new identity that we have been given in Christ. And we see a glimpse of this already, even in this conversation. You are Simon. You will be called Peter. Jesus transforms us. Not just our identity. We don't just get a new identity in Christ. He, he radically transforms our attitude, our perspective. And for that, I want to look at Philip and Nathaniel's story which is so fascinating, and I love looking at these conversations. 
And there's a quote by Max Lucado that I love. Max Lucado said, God loves you just the way you are, but he refuses to leave you that way. He wants you to be just like Jesus. And we see this in Philip and Nathaniel, and this is what we're going to wrap up with, looking at all the different elements of when Nathaniel met Jesus. So this is John 1, 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Side note, I love that Philip doesn't feel the need to debate Nathanael. I love that, that Philip doesn't feel the need to sit down and like, Well, let's talk about your preconceived notions regarding Nazareth, right? He's like, no, oh, come and see. Jesus is evidence for himself. You want to see who Jesus is? Come and see. Right? I love that Philip takes that approach. So he says, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Isn't that incredible? In the span of one conversation, Nathaniel goes from utterly mocking and scoffing at and dismissing the idea that the Messiah could come out of Nazareth. What? Get out of here. The Messiah is not going to be from Nazareth. That's a worthless place with worthless people. You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. What transformed Nathaniel? Jesus. Encountering Christ, encountering the Messiah, revolutionized Nathaniel's approach to the world. It completely changed his thinking. That's who Jesus is. We cannot know Jesus and continue to think the way we used to. We cannot know Jesus. We should not know Jesus and continue to live the way we used to. Why? Because Jesus changes us. And He changes us to look more like Him. It's God's desire that we would be conformed to the person of Christ. And I want to finish with a specific example of that. One that I've told you guys, I preach out of what God is teaching me. That, I don't know. So when I'm, what I'm about to talk about, I've been learning for the last two weeks. A specific example of what it means to be transformed to look like Jesus. Because how would we reply... Think of Nathaniel and Jesus' interaction. How would we reply if that happened to us, right? If you heard me, say you were in a room with an air vent, and you could hear me talking to a friend, but we didn't know you could hear us, right? And I was like, hey, you got to come meet my friends. you got to come meet, you got to come meet my buddy Kyle, one of the best musicians I've ever known. I mean, just phenomenally talented musician, right? And if Kyle heard my friend go, from Mansfield? No. People in Mansfield, like, they no, get out of here. Mansfield's no good. How would you feel if I was like, hey, come meet my friend from Mansfield? And their response was, what a worthless city. No, I have no interest in meeting someone from Mansfield. And then I introduce you to them. Isn't there a part of you that anticipates Jesus calling Nathaniel out a little bit? Because at different points, Jesus calls out people who have the wrong attitude. So isn't there, there's a part of me, if I'm being honest, there's a part of me that's like, oh, Nathaniel's going to get it when he meets Jesus. Jesus is going to call him out on it. Why? Because unfortunately, that's how I'd be tempted to reply. But what does Jesus do? 
Nathaniel has just completely dismissed Jesus. He has mocked the idea of the Messiah coming from Nazareth. He has scoffed and scorned this notion. And how does Jesus reply? How does the Bible tell us we should reply when we're offended, when we're insulted like that? And before you start to say, well, we're not, you know, we're not, other people get insulted. Come on. I, I can truthfully say, and this is tragic, I can truthfully say, I don't remember the last time I went online and didn't see strangers fighting with each other. Whether it's in the comment section of a news story, whether it's on Facebook posts, so I, I can't remember the last time I didn't see strangers hurling abuse at each other because they had differing opinions. We are a society that our default reaction is to be offended and insulted. But what's the Bible say? The Bible says, Proverbs 12, 16, the vexation of a fool is known at once. Are our vexations known at once? If somebody says something that really just ticks us off or annoys us or irritates us, is that known at once? Yeah, I know what annoys Sam. Because the moment it happens, he spouts off about it. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. And like I said, I've been convicted on this over the last two weeks. I've found myself praying, God, forgive me for being a fool. I mean, I've got to, I have to be honest. I have to be willing to call myself a fool when I'm unable to overlook an insult. We have to be willing to say, yeah, if I'm unable to overlook an insult, if I take everything as an offense, that makes me a fool. Lord, forgive me. I've had to, I've had to pray that over the last two weeks. I want to be someone who overlooks insults, who overlooks offenses. Because not only does Jesus do this, to tie back to Jesus and Nathaniel, Jesus doesn't just stop at overlooking the insult. Jesus doesn't just stop at, okay, well, I'll ignore what Nathaniel said about me. Jesus takes it a step further, and he gives Nathaniel a compliment like few others we see in Scripture. This is how Jesus replies to Nathaniel, the man who has just mocked him. He says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. That word for indeed is the Greek word alethos. And it means genuinely, truly. What Jesus is saying is, this is the ultimate standard of an Israelite. This is, this is the top mark. You want to know what an Israelite is? Nathaniel. And keep in mind at that time, an Israelite referred to God's people. It referred to the holiness, right? So what Jesus was saying is, he was saying, that man, that is the standard of what is right and good. That Nathaniel is truly the mark of someone who loves God. Huh? Didn't he, just, didn't he just make fun of the idea that you could be the Messiah? And you're pointing him out as the standard, truly, genuinely someone who loves God. In whom there is no deceit. It's the same word, that word alethos, that here is an Israelite indeed. It's the same word that Jesus uses in John 8, 31. He said, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You are the genuine artifact. You are the real deal. This is not an insignificant word. This is a word with weight to it. This is a heavy word. And Jesus just used this to describe someone who insulted him. 
Here is an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Why? Why was Jesus able to say this? Why did Jesus say this about Nathanael? Because Jesus was looking at the man's heart. Jesus was looking beyond the surface. Jesus was looking beyond the shallow, beyond the immediate. He said, in whom, that phrase was talking about Nathanael's heart. In Nathanael, there is no deceit. There is no dishonesty. He is not a disingenuous person. He is the real deal. He wants to love God. He is seeking after God. Here is an Israelite indeed. What do you think the world would look like if every time a Christian was insulted or offended, we responded by celebrating and praising the other person? What do you think the world would look like if the church, every time the church wanted to be offended, we stopped to remember that there is a heart beyond those words, a heart that God loves, a heart that God desires would be after His own. We looked at a couple weeks ago. The Lord is not slow to act as we understand slowness, but is patient that none should perish, wanting everyone to come to repentance. What if we looked at the people who insult us and offend us, and we remembered this is someone who God wants to come to repentance? What if we looked at people's hearts instead of looking at their words, wanting to be offended, wanting to be the victim? <sighs> i got to be honest, and it hasn't happened for the last two years, which has me so... So excited that maybe we're finally learning. I'll never forget when a coworker come up to me in December and they're like, "Are you just ticked off at Starbucks right now?" I'm like, huh? Uh, it's December and they don't have the nativity scene on their cups. They're not a Christian company. They've never pretended to be a Christian company. Why in the world would I waste my emotional energy getting mad at non-Christians not explicitly celebrating Jesus? That's such a petty thing to get mad about. I mean, if you want to boycott them during the month of December, that's entirely up to you. But if you want to pick a fight about it, I'm sorry, I think that's pretty petty. I think that's pretty immature. And I said this to my coworker, and they got outraged. They were like, no, we should be outraged over Starbucks. I said, okay. Should a Christian bakery have to close to celebrate Muslim holidays? Should a Christian bakery have to, to close to celebrate Kwanzaa? And they're like, no, of course not. Why? Well, because they don't believe that. Starbucks doesn't believe in Jesus. So why in the world would I waste my time getting offended at the fact that they put happy holidays on their cups? We get so outraged at the smallest of things. And I look at this story of Jesus and Nathaniel, I look at these verses and they, man, they just, they punch me in the stomach. And they force me to ask, God, am I a fool who gets easily offended? Am I looking to be insulted? Am I looking at people's posts and people's comments, just looking to be insulted by them and, and to be the victim of their targeted mean speech? Do I make my vexations known at once? Am I a fool? I want to be someone like Jesus. I want to have a heart that can look at an insult. And it may be a legitimate insult. It may be a legitimate offense. It may be a legitimate scorning and mocking and scoffing of who I am. I want to be someone who can look at that and say, okay, I still love the person behind it because God loves the person behind it. I forgive the person behind it because God forgives the person behind it. You can insult me. That's all right. 
doesn't matter. I'm still going to love you. Because that's what Jesus did with Nathaniel, right? Nathaniel trivialized everything about the idea of the Messiah being from Nazareth. And Jesus responded by saying, this is the standard of someone who loves God. Because Jesus was looking at Nathaniel's heart. I want to be someone who looks at people's hearts. I want to be someone who is transformed. Nathaniel was transformed by his interaction with Christ. I want to be someone who's transformed by my relationship with Christ. And I think a very real and practical example of that is learning to not be insulted. We do weekly challenges most weeks. That's your, that's your challenge this week. Last week's challenge or two weeks ago challenge wasn't easy. This one's not a whole lot easier. But here's what I want you to do. Here's what I've been trying to do. Or here's, not try, here's what I've been doing the last two weeks as I've prepped for this. Anytime you're tempted to get insulted, Anytime you're tempted to get offended or outraged, right? Somebody says something and you're just, oh, I got to let them know how I feel. I got to let them know how wrong they are. Stop and pray for that person instead. When we're tempted to get insulted, when we're tempted to get offended, stop. Here's what I've been doing. Lord, forgive me for being a fool. And then I immediately move into praying for that person or praying for that organization. And not praying like, Lord, please help them see how wrong they are and how right I am. But praying like, God, this is someone you love. This is someone you want to repent. If they have, thank you for that. If they have not, Lord, please bring them to you. Let this be someone that I love deeply. Let this be someone who my words reflect my love for them. My response to them reflects my love for them. That's my challenge this week. When you you want to get insulted, when you want to get offended, stop and pray for the person instead. Ask that God would transform us, right? Jesus must be sought after. And why? To loop, to loop this third point back to the first point. Why must Jesus be sought after? To transform us. Are we pursuing Christ that we may look more like Christ? I want that to be the burden on our hearts. That we are diligently, continually, entirely pursuing God so that we may be radically transformed by Him to look like Jesus to this world. I see these things in the conversations with Simon and with Andrew, Simon who would become Peter. I see these things in the conversation with Philip and Nathaniel, and I want them to ring true in our lives. I want our church to be a body of people who are burdened with an urgency to share Jesus with everyone we know, who are seeking Christ who are being transformed to look more and more like Him. I want this so desperately for my own life, and I want this so desperately for our church. Please join me in prayer. God, we thank You for sending Christ. We thank You for giving us the intellectual capacity to read Your Word, to listen to sermons, to listen to podcasts, to listen to praise and worship music. We thank You for the the intellectual capacity to seek after You. We thank You for the emotional capacity to seek after You, for the ability to pursue You and to learn more about You. And God, we pray that in our pursuit, we would know You more and more, that we would know You better, and that as we know You more, as we know You better, it would be driven to our knees in repentance and in desire to constantly look more and more like You. Mold us, God. Refine us. I mean, burn away everything unclean and impure. Whatever it takes in my own life, God, just 
refine me. I mean, I love the image of a potter in the clay. Get rid of the lumps. Get rid of the misshapen nonsense. And just conform us to look like Christ. I pray this would be the burden on all of our hearts. And as we look like Christ, as we grow in our capacity to love the rest of this world, God, I pray that you would burden us with a necessity to share you. Not just when it's convenient, not just when the other person starts up the conversation, God, but let it be the driving force in our lives to make you known. Please, create in us these hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, quickly, I wanted to spend a little bit of time. If you're on the email chain, hopefully you saw the email from this past week. If you're not on the email chain, sign up for the email chain. Every time we talk about email, we will encourage you to sign up for the email chain. Um, but this is, I mean, knock on whatever material this is, metal probably. This is the last week we'll be outside. We'll be moving back inside starting next Sunday. Um, that will look a little different, you know, again, and if you saw the email, I'm just kind of reiterating some of those points. Uh, if you didn't see the email, you'll hear this for the first time. If you have questions, reach out to us, give the church office a call, send us a message, but it's going to look a little bit different when we move back inside. Um, we're going to be doing an RSVP system. We're going to have the capacity cut, not, not all the way down to half, but not what it used to be. We're going to be looking at 100 people to start to see what that kind of looks like. We've been looking at the numbers that have come out for outside services. Uh, we talked about a bunch of different factors, and we feel, we feel safe with starting at 100 people in terms of we realize there are some of you who would pack 400 people into the sanctuary without hesitation. We realize there are some of you who would rather we started with 20 people. Right? We're, we're trying to be respectful and mindful of every side. So we're going to have 100 people to start with. And so what that means is we are asking you to RSVP. And there's a link on our homepage. If you go to our website, discovercommunity.org, it's right there at the top. There is a link in the email. If you don't have access to Internet and you want to RSVP, please call the office and we can help you with that. Um, we are, another great question was, you know, are we going to have seats set aside for maybe guests or newcomers or people who can't RSVP and forgot to call? Yes. In hopeful anticipation, we will have some extra seats set aside. But what that means is we're asking people to be honest. If you try an RSVP and we've already reached capacity, please don't show up anyway. We're, we're asking for integrity in that. And in that, if you RSVP and we're already at capacity and you receive a sorry, this is already full, let us know immediately and we'll put you at the top of the list for next week, right? This isn't a, well, I haven't been able to attend in four weeks because I try an RSVP. No, if you can't get in one week, let us know. We'll make sure you get in next week. And this won't be forever. This, this won't be for the rest of time. This is going to be continually part of the re-entry, which is, it, we're asking for patience. And we thank you. Honestly, you guys have been really fantastic throughout this. When you've had questions and concerns, you've reached out to us, which we appreciate. I, don't ever feel like, oh, I can't call Sam if I don't like something the church is doing. No, I want, that's when I want you to call me, right? Like, I don't want you to just hold on to it and resent us. So when you've had questions, when you've had objections, you've reached out, and it's been great. And so please, if you have questions, if you have thoughts, reach out. I'd love to talk more and try and explain as much as I can. But we're going to have RSVP system. There's going to be a new capacity. 
We're going to have the seats spaced out a little bit more. We're bringing back the ushers, right? We're going to be directing people kind of, okay, when you're here, we're going to try and be splitting out like left, right, left, right. You know, so we're trying to balance it out decently. So please, again, respect what you're told by, and it's not like you can, you know, we'll be able to say, oh, well, I didn't see them. We're going to have the guys stationed inside the doors, inside the sanctuary door. I mean, like, it'll be very obvious who's telling you where to go and when. Please respect that. Um, we're going to continue to use the remote drop box for tithes and offerings. It'll be right inside the sanctuary doors, so we don't have to have a whole lot of hand-to-hand -hand exchange and interactions like that. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, we won't bring your own caffeine. We're not going to have a coffee bar set up like normal. Um, so if you, if you would need that caffeine in the morning, bring your own because uh, we won't have that. We're, one of the questions has been, are we going to require masks? We will not require masks to come into the building. If you feel safer wearing a mask, if you would rather wear a mask, by all means, that is your right to do so. We will not require it. Uh, we will be doing singing. I know some churches in different parts of the country have talked about services, but no singing inside. We will sing inside. We, we talked about it, and we felt that was best. Um, so if that affects your decision, we don't want anybody to be surprised by showing up and, and we're singing inside. Um, but yeah, we're, we're moving back inside. And so if you have questions, again, please reach out. If you need help with RSVPing, reach out to the church office. Um, but that's, that's where we're going to be starting next week. And then the last thing I want to do this morning, and uh, these guys are all going to shake their heads and they're not going to, they're not going to, ah, too bad. I take my cues from Paul. Paul, Paul mentioned people by name, and if it's good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. Um, please, when you get a moment, thank Kyle. Thank Georgie back there. Yeah. Thank George. Thank James. Thank Matt when he's back. I mean, and to everyone on the worship team, thank you very much. We greatly appreciate it. We always do, and I should probably say that more, but Kyle and George and James and Matt, they've been getting here hours early on Sunday morning, right? Like this stuff just, I can't magically snap my fingers and set up the sound equipment. And so they have really, in these outdoor services, these four have stepped up. And when I've said things to them, like, hey, we're going to thank, they're like, no, 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 we're not, none of these guys are doing it for the recognition. They're doing it because they love God and they love this church body. But I want to make sure they know how much we appreciate the extra mile that they've gone of sacrificing their time to help with these outdoor services. So please, when you get a chance, George, James, Kyle, Matt, we are, we are, we've been so blessed by you guys over these past five or six weeks. Uh, yeah, I didn't really plan a great phase out after that. That was kind of my last thing. Um, let me pray and, and then we'll go about our week. Lord, just again, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for a body of people who have come out and, God, we've had people sit through 95-degree weather. We've had people sit through 55-degree weather. And they're here because they want to be, they want to be gathered as your family. And, and that's such a blessing to be part of a family that is committed to one another like this. You are so good. And we cannot wait to see what you have ahead for this body. So we submit to you in all things and we give you praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.